0: from Austin and welcome to episode 163 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Robert Strauss Center, University of Texas. It's Wednesday night, April 15th, 2020. I'm Bobby Chesney.
1: I'm Steve Lodick. I guess it, it would have been tax day.
0: I had a panic moment earlier where I couldn't remember if I imagined or it was real that they extended by 90 days the filing deadline. And I looked at my watch and
1: saw it was the 15th and I completely freaked. I was calling my wife like,
0: we got to go get our taxes done.
1: So apparently there's a, there's a, ooh, Marty Lederman is calling me. Hi, Marty. Oh,
0: visual um, evidence. Uh, it would be really funny if you could get enough sound quality there to pick it up and be like, hey, we're recording live, Marty. What you got going on? I
1: suspect Marty's calling me to talk about our first topic on tonight's episode. But the um, with, yeah, Roxy's on the pod. I'll uh, oh, get, get Marty on the pod. Karen on the pod. Um, so the um, I don't know if you've seen, there's this, there's this TV station in Cleveland that has added a segment to its nightly local news broadcast. And the segment is called, What Day Is It Today?, um fii the news is today is wednesday so they go to so they so they cut to a reporter standing at like a a weather screen and it's like today is wednesday
0: oh my god that's
1: brilliant (laughs) and it's like i have to say you know i feel that like you know i but but for the fact that you know but for our classes like i would have no idea what day it was
0: There's a a, Heather and I were saying earlier that there's a uh, hybridization of weekdays and weekends going on in our house. They have a lot of, they have all the same qualities, a little bit of both. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, that won't be our only Cleveland reference on the show.
1: It will not be our only Cleveland reference on this It'll show. It'll be a different
0: Cleveland, but there yeah. will be another Cleveland reference. Uh,
1: uh, the the only president to serve non-consecutive terms so far. Um, so, was uh, <laughs> that even go there? Oh my God! Listen, I just I mean weird stuff is happening, Bobby. Okay, That's so true. so here I was this afternoon thinking like we we're gonna have a nice fun chat about federalism and in raid Debs and the president's power or lack thereof to override local and state shelter in place orders and all of a sudden twitter starts blowing up about the president's power to adjourn congress (laughs) and i have Uh, to say like i mean i you know uh, charles the first charles the first and as and as you know i i revel in obscure irrelevant constitutional provisions that have never been used and so the adjournment clause i was like why is this a thing and then i was like oh shoot there's a press conference going on right now. We did, uh,
0: we did Noel Canning
1: the other day. In, Good in timing.
0: Class, and so it was somewhat fresh in my mind, but I confess that I, I neglected to tell my students a few weeks ago or a few classes back that one possible factor we might see would be an attempt to expand beyond the adjournment clause. So we'll unpack the that. power and its limits – because there is a power. There is a power. There's, there's, true, the power. there's power, the power, President, to adjourn Congress. And actually, I can't remember if I even got around to saying in class, but I had a thought at the time as I was prepping that class that it might be kind of fun to talk about the, what is shocking to many people to learn that there is a power, but then you learn how it works and you realize, oh, there's a reason nobody knows about this. <laughs> and
1: there's a reason why it's never, ever, ever been done in the 231 year history of this country.
0: A lot of that going around. Yeah, but I mean, like, yeah.
1: It's, it's like Trump is just trying to top himself and like he's just, he's progressively trying to drive all constitutional law professors crazy and he's succeeding. Oh, um,
0: or give us full employment. The man is grist for the middle of CNN, in
1: New yeah, York Times, all these other
0: entities he doesn't like, so why not com law professors too?
1: So speaking of com law, we also do want to talk a fair amount about what we had planned to spend much of our time on today, which is this new um, PR push that the president's gonna somehow assert the authority to override or countermand these local and state shelter-in-place orders. Um, Bobby and I, I think, as will disappoint some of you, I think are in complete agreement about the relevant legal questions and answers in this space. Um,
0: it takes debatable issues to get us d- to divide in this <laughs> one. that's not quite fair. We actually, we will endeavor to find where's the the kernel of, of- support or defense one could spin up in the right circumstances to right. Well, I, You know, the Maybe, maybe there,
1: are, there are individual lines in Justice Brewer's majority opinion and depths that we find more or less satisfying.
0: So we will, well, I, th- I think it's actually, it's really fun to have an excuse to do what we're going to do, which is not a full-fledged deep dive. Maybe a moderate dive. It is a moderate dive, to a dive to a moderate depth. Mm. We're not at periscope depth, but we're not going to run deep. We're not going to go to crush devs. <laughs> we're certainly not going to run silent. Um, so we're going to actually spend some time talking about Andre Debs because <laughs> –
1: Hey, that's a good episode title. We're not going to run silent? <laughs> we're not going to run deep and we're not going to run silent.
0: Oh, that's good. I'll, this I'll,
1: podcast I'll. is neither silent nor deep. Or we, Ooh, That's we, good.
0: Wait, what was the thing Trump said about powerful opening? He, had some, he, had that, he has that way of putting adjectives in the wrong place. Yeah, what yeah. was it? Um, a a powerful reopening plan? I think that we should be able to work that in there.
1: In any event. We're gonna, po- we're gonna we're gonna do a little this, bit this, of a. This podcast experience. has no power to reopen anything.
0: Well, that's true, <laughs> including your eyes if we're putting you to sleep. All right, um, so, so we we'll spend a lot of time in pandemia.
1: Yep, it, we're gonna we're gonna do a very quick quick detour to Guantanamo, where there was an important ruling in the 9/11 case by the trial judge by the the momentary trial judge in the 9/11 case. Well, I am curious what what's the count on trial judges we've had so far. I I honestly, Bobby, I've I mean, this will be the this will be the fourth trial judge, and then when this judge is replaced and we get a new one, I think it'll be the fourth judge in like four or five years. So, yeah.
0: Any particular reason to think that's going to change if they can't (laughs) resolve the case sometime soon? I mean, are we are we stuck in a perpetual cycle? You know, there's this. Uh, phrase uh, being inside uh, the other guy's ooda loop you know you hear that in military circles this, it, it's this idea the other side can can act and is operating quicker than you can make your decisions and you take your actions um the, the cycle outside the ooda loop yeah exactly
1: <laughs> all right all right let's I'm i'm a title machine tonight and then and then we're going to finish frivolity. with frivolity on this week's sort of bobby i think hit and miss episode of westworld
0: um, it would be a hit if it was a show I had different expectations for, series I had different standards and expectations for.
1: But, um, but yeah, the, there's a whole sort of middle of this week's episode that I won't spoil anything about where I just just didn't feel it.
0: Yeah, I, there, things I like, things I didn't like,
1: it'll be definitely. good grist for the mill, that's for sure. All right, so um, let's start with uh, <laughs> the president's power to adjourn Congress. I know
0: many listeners are thinking, if only the president had the power to adjourn this podcast. But my friends, he has no such power. Um, let me see if I can give us the. Uh, oh, do we oh, start sh- with the text?
1: Yes, the let text me, here. Oh, can you can you screen share it? Uh, let's see if you give me permission. Um, maybe I'll just uh, I can. I do leave. not have
0: permission, my friend.
1: Oh no! Um, you can stand fix by. that.
0: Um, we are. <laughs> I hate to. I don't want to say anything like we're Zoom bomb proof because last thing we need. Although it might actually be deeply entertaining if, if somebody I has got to it. their way into this.
1: I'm gonna share, I'll share my screen because I've, I've got it on my screen right now. All right, so here Do we go. We uh, share screen. So um, for those of you who are not actually watching on our screen and are listening at home, um, what I am sharing um, is Article 2, Section 3 of the Constitution. Bobby, can you see it? Yep, got it. And so um, Article 2, Section 3, he shall from time to time give Congress information of the State of the Union, blah, blah, blah. He may on extraordinary occasions convene both houses, or either of them. And in case of disagreement between them with respect to the time of adjournment, he may adjourn them to such time as he shall think proper. Um, that's the clause. So can we talk can we say a bit before we talk about the specific question, can we talk a bit about how congressional sessions work?
0: That's a good idea. Let's explain the distinction uh, between, you know, recess and adjournment in particular.
1: So in the old days, right? So in the old days, Congress was a part-time concern. Um, And so what that meant was that, like, take the first Congress, right? The Congress elected in 1788 that meets for the first time, I think, in, what, March of 1789, Um, right? Congress would have multiple sessions, Bobby, but there would be long blocks where Congress was, quote, out of session because Congress went home. Um, And this was the norm all the way up to the Civil War. And so you'd have a Congress that would have maybe three sessions over two years. Um, And then you'd have recesses, right? And most of the recesses, not all of them, but most of the recesses in this time period are what we call intercession recesses, where Congress is adjourned for more than three days, um, and indeed for months at a time, which is important in other contexts because it's during such um, formal recesses that the president clearly has the power to do what are called recess appointments, um, which is to fill vacancies, Um, in in government positions, in offices of the United States, with appointments that will last until the expiration of the next session of Congress. Um, So for example, if between the second and third session of, say, the second Congress, you know, President Washington named a new Secretary of Treasury, he wouldn't be acting, he would be a full Secretary of the Treasury, only until the end of the third session of Congress, so only until Congress had had time to vote up or down on the nomination. Um, this changes slowly but steadily so that now and for the better part of the last eh, few decades, right, um, Congress doesn't adjourn like that anymore, right? That is to say um, most Congresses, which meet for two years, have two sessions, one that goes from January 3rd of year one to noon on January 3rd of year two, and then one that goes from 1201 on, you know, January 3rd of year two to noon on, you know, January 3rd of year three, right? So so the whole idea is that the se- the two sessions occupy all of the space. Um, now, the Supreme Court in the Noel Cannon case in 2012 said even recesses within sessions, so-called intra-session recesses, can be recesses for purpose of the recess appointments clause, Bobby, if they're at least 10 days, um, right? And so the pro forma sessions that the Senate had for much of the Obama administration weren't recesses because in theory, Congress could conduct business, even if only by unanimous consent. Okay, this all matters to me as setup because um, it is no longer the case that Congress is repeatedly voting on when to adjourn under a 1970 statute. And actually, let me pull up the statute. Under a 1970 statute that is codified, if you wanna follow along at home, at 2 U.S.C. section 198. Um, and let me sort of pull this up on share screen so that we can all look at it. Um, unless otherwise provided by the Congress, the two houses shall adjourn synodia, which means basically without, a, not to a date certain, without a date, not later than July 31st of each year, or Bobby, right, provide, um, in the case of odd number of years, not later than July 31st, by such concurrent resolution adopted in each house by roll call vote for the adjournment of the two houses from that Friday in August, which occurs at least 30 days before the 1st May of September of such a year to the second day after Labor Day right? So there are provisions in the code, sorry, there are provisions in the code for adjournments, but Bobby, the norm has become um, that um, Congress remains in session um, right up until Congress is over. Sorry, that was a lot of talking.
0: No, no, it's great. And so the stakes here, this this is entirely about, as the president stated expressly, trying to access as much as possible the ability to make uh recess appointments to fill judgeships and to fill offices
1: now because you know he's had so much trouble filling judgeships
0: right so so the first thing to say is um (laughs) you know as far as the judgeships go there's no problem there to be circumvented as far as the offices go the problem is he doesn't ever nominate anybody or sometimes when he does there are problematic nominations but but there's this is not a situation where this is an actual problem for him, so what do we, do we understand is going on here? Well, this is, this is symbolism, this is this is narrative shaping. Uh, to some extent, it's bluster, to some extent, maybe it's even just the random hyperbole that he tends to throw out there from time to time. Sometimes, no doubt, greatly surprising everybody who's working for him. Um, and this is a point I wanna just, I wanna go to the meta level just briefly, because in in that sense, there are some who would say, y'all are going way too deep on something he just randomly said and he didn't really mean he's never going to act on and because I heard that I got that in my ear a fair amount from folks on our next topic which I think was actually misplaced as a critique because I think he meant very much what he said because he kept repeating it but I think it doesn't really matter and I, I suspect I know the answer but I wonder if you agree that even when the president makes hyperbolic, blustery, and, and rather random off-the-cuff assertions of the scope of his legal authority, if it's an important authority that's at issue, then there's not just, it's not just proper to respond with debunking for people like us, um, but it's, it's a duty. It's an obligation. It's part of civic virtue uh, to articulate what is wrong with that so that people who actually might care about these issues understand where the lines actually are. And that but, there's real harm if the president sort of tries to, by, by accident or otherwise, is in the position of kind of adversely possessing
1: power by I, just asserting it. I agree with every single word of that. I mean, you know, and, and and I'm the one who's even more prone, I think, to go down rabbit holes than you are. Um, it's true. It's a measure of how ridiculous some of this is that I've been sucked into doing this. Seriously. I can tell you not to get sucked in. Totally. Um, but I also, I mean, it's worth talking about this power in particular because the founders, this was not a random provision in the constitution, right? That, you know, um, adjourning parliament and proroguing parliament had been- ever, Did anyone ever do that? Um, well, Charles I, um, right. and, and how'd that work out for him? Uh, it only cost him his head. Um, so, you know, the founders, I mean, the reason why this clause is in the Constitution is because the founders wanted to actually make explicit that the president generally did not have the power to adjourn Congress, right? That rather than leaving it unso- unspoken, the purpose of Article 2, II, Section 3 is actually mostly to deny power to the president. Um, And to delineate the single circumstance in which this power is allowed to be exercised um, by the president. Um, And Bobby, we should say, because we haven't said it yet, it has never been exercised, right? There is not a single episode. Um, There are instances in American history of the president using the power in Article 2, Section 3, Bobby, to convene Congress, right? So um, Harry Truman famously calls Congress back into a special session, I think in 47, right, to pass emergency economic legislation. Um, but that's different, right? This is sent in Congress home. And I understand the conspiracy theorists who say, well, the Republican Senate will do whatever they need, you know, the president wants them to do. I think there are two different reasons why this is not something Mitch McConnell's going to want to do. Um, the first is, um, it would be very easy for the Democrats to shift all of the blame for this to McConnell. And let me walk through how, right? Bobby, the president can only adjourn Congress if the chambers disagree. So imagine if the Senate passes a new resolution to adjourn Congress tomorrow, right? If I'm Nancy Pelosi, I pass the exact same resolution through the House. And then it's Mitch McConnell's fault that Congress went home, right? And so Mitch McConnell adjourned Congress, not President Trump but still the Republicans. And related to that, in the middle of a huge economic crisis and an unprecedented public health crisis, you're gonna send home the people who write the checks, right? I think
0: there's there's no chance that the the members in Congress would be on board with some plan that would serve what purpose for the White
1: House? Well, this is the other thing, right? So we're not talking about judges, right? Because when it comes to judges- The judges judges are being approved. Right, we're talking about executive branch officers. So let's play out the string right? So imagine Mitch McConnell actually does roll over and let Trump do this, right? So you get a bunch of like sub cabinet appointments that are only as good, that are only good until the next president comes into office. I mean, you know, the first, if, if things go badly for Trump in November, the first thing Biden does on January 20th is he fires all of these recess appointees, right? Which he'd have the unquestioned constitutional authority to do. So all of this so that you get like seven months of deputy secretaries of certain agencies, I mean.
0: Yeah, no, that, which is why this isn't a real thing. <laughs> but, but, it's, but this is my other point, it's not real. He's not gonna try to do this and certainly no one's gonna go along with it even if he tries to float it. So this is just another one of his passing fancies. But it's still important, especially because of the concatenation of all these sorts of uh, bogus claims of Article II authority. Um, that it be shot down and then people call out and say, it's not okay for the president of the United States who sworn an oath to uphold the constitution to constantly be making these absolute power claims. This isn't, he's not James the first, and he's certainly not Charles the first. Let me quote Alexander Hamilton from mm. federalist number 69. That guy. Yeah. Fourthly, the president can only adjourn the national legislature in the single case of disagreement about the time of adjournment. This this is ridiculous.
1: Okay, um, it's ridiculous, it's not gonna happen. The question is why is he doing it? And so, right, I mean, because I always, with Trump, like the question is if if, if this is just a, a stupid little distraction, what is, what is he distracting us from? And so I think part of what's going on here is shifting <laughs> the conversation away from a couple of other things that have happened. Um, Including first, um, and we're not going to talk about this that much, but like, you know, uh, defunding the U.S. involvement in the World Health Organization, um, right? Um, second, right, the news about sort of how far be, behind we are on testing, right? I think the, yeah. the statistic that came out today is we've hit 3.3 million tests nationwide, which if you're scoring at home means 1% of the country has been tested once. One
0: time. Let me let me quickly join in on that. So on the first one about the WHO thing, I don't think he wants to change that conversation at all because I don't think he views that as a dangerous conversation for him. I think it's done. I think that was done both for substantive and for narrative reasons. Narrative Fair. being my shorthand for like, hey, here's, here's the story I want to tell about myself. Um, because that is ultimately conducive to his larger And at this point, strategically essential narrative that this is China's fault, not his fault. Um, And of course, why does it have to be binary? Um, I do think substantively, I just can't resist saying like- Bobby, it's contributory negligence, not comparative negligence. There you go. (laughs) Very good. Um, There are serious problems with the WHO and the extent to which um, they seem to be unwilling to cross China and have people working there who- in, in, you know, I'm sure you saw or heard about the one particularly bizarre instance where the one official was acting almost like he couldn't perceive the word or the concept of Taiwan. It was really something. But I completely agree on the second point that that this is about trying to steer away from any narratives or the media focusing on um, misfeasance and absence of feasance. Is there no mission of feasance? Uh, with respect to all the things that could be done by a strong and vigorous uh, chief executive to help coordinate and supply the national effort that, by the way, is in his interest to do aside from the fact that it should be the interest of any president to try to help in that way. But his, his bugaboo seems to be just frustration with the closure orders. The only pathway out of the closures the only safe pathway out of it, barring uh, significant medical breakthroughs that all seem fairly far off still, is is it an extremely robust uh, test and trace regime an extremely robust test regime. We're, we're not remotely close to it yet. And the federal government seems to be, if anything, sort of eschewing responsibility for having a, a leading role in helping us get there. Um, so, yeah, I agree with your second point.
1: Um okay but so then this brings us to the second most preposterous thing the president or no actually maybe the most preposterous thing the president said this week. Yeah, this is um, more.
0: This is this is this is
1: more. Um and this is the one that really I mean this is the one that pushed the National Review like to go all nuclear against John You well, yeah, just, I don't like talking about that guy, but yes. Um,
0: <laughs> yeah, but it's a sign, right? <laughs> Although I will yeah, say- yeah. I,
1: when, when you've even lost John you on executive power from a conservative president, I think that's a sign.
0: I will say, uh, I appear, I had so much fun yesterday appearing in uh, Sarah Krebs' uh, mm-hmm. class at Cornell. And at one point we talked about that and I hadn't yet known what John had said. So I predicted that he would come out against this on the theory that- um, uh, yeah, I think John's John. And i are probably similar in age. Uh, guys like us who kind of come up uh, relatively conservative. John, John, very conservative, obviously. Um, there, there are certain uh, planks in the platform that interest you. Federalism being one of them. John's very invested, as everyone knows, uh, famously or infamously, uh, in executive power in the realms of foreign affairs, national defense, and national security. Um, but on more sort of bread and butter policy categories, federalism, one would not predict him to be a a, a nationalist over a a federal system advocate. And so anyways, long winded interruption there to characterize
1: John's intervention. It's fine. So the president says my authority, so the president says he has the authority to order states and local governments to reopen, which by the way, there are like it's like um what it's uh what mark hamill in one of the new star wars movies right you know um uh interesting law interesting sentence every word in it was wrong right like you know um <laughs> so the the um my authority he says is total um total. and then and then and then but then pence comes back and Penn, it, bad enough that Trump says something like my authority is total, but then Pence, who's supposed to be you know the adult in the room, comes back and says, "Of course, during an emergency, the president's authority is plenary, right?" Yeah, um, yeah, no, right. <laughs> and it's like if they had <laughs> like, just used yes. if they had just used different words, um, right? The president Bobby promised a legal brief. We haven't seen it yet. So let's let's walk through all of this, right? And let's try to do this in a way that makes some sense. So. Most of us are subject Bobby to some combination of local and state shelter in place and or stay home orders, right? Um, Those are authorities promulgated by our local or state officials under their police powers under the state constitution um, of the relevant state, right? Every state delegates police general regulatory powers including for public health to some actor within the state government. Um, And just to be clear, it's not like even the governor's Bobby can order us to reopen, right? Governor Abbott can't say to a restaurant, I order you to reopen. He can just remove the obstacle to them reopening, right? Like that's-
0: The proprietor in a free country, the business person who
1: owns that business can decide like, yeah, So, nah, so, for, I, think, so first I, all, I think I'm sitting this out. Right, so first of all, not even the governors can order anybody to reopen but sure as hell the president can't and there are two different reasons why right reason number one is because he didn't close them in the first place right this would be a very famously
0: right he didn't want to close them,
1: right this would be a very different conversation if he had sought and received legislation from congress that for example allowed him to order the closure of any non-essential business that affects interstate commerce right that actually probably would have been a viable commerce clause statute it would have allowed him to shut down most big businesses if he'd wanted to, which he didn't. That didn't happen. So that's reason number one. Um, reason number two, the federal government doesn't... So so first of all, the federal government maybe has the power, Bobby, over big businesses, right? Through the Interstate Commerce Clause. But the federal government... Just,
0: just sorry, big businesses?
1: I think it depends on which generation of the Supreme Court's Commerce Clause jurisprudence we're talking about. Um, I don't think local schools... Can be covered by a federal statute, right? Unless it's a fund, unless it's suspended, like not under the Commerce Clause. Right, I think um, small businesses, especially uh, very small businesses, I think we have you'd have a hard time covering under the Commerce Clause. So
0: really, well, no, we got to go down on that. I, I'm surprised Wickard v. Philburn doesn't change your mind on that. I mean, there, these would be commercial activities. Surely the aggregation of principle applies. In, but so in Wickard,
1: practices. in, in Wicker, it was the market, right? In Wickard, this is this is why I mind. This is I'm I'm talking about a world after NFIB, right? Where mm-hmm. where the economic non-economic activity distinction, where the whole point is that Congress can regulate, you know, local um, subsistence farmers, Congress can tell Angel Rach, you know, how to grow marijuana in her backyard, right? Because those are commodities. But I think I, I just, I, I don't, not every feature, Bobby, of a local stay stay home or shelter in place order touches s- stuff that can be legis- regulated by Congress through the Commerce Clause. We, we can disagree I, I about agree, that. I
0: agree that there's right. going to be slices and there may be pockets. Yeah. But I think that for the main event. For, for those who are eager to see the economy reopen, yes, the main event is is the overriding or repealing of any level state or local authority that is keeping most businesses closed. Fair enough, and so that so, right. I think is all something Congress. I I don't love it that Congress has this much legislative authority, but I think they've got it.
1: Listen, we've talked about this before on this podcast, right? I think that there are a bunch of powers that the Congress has already delegated to the president that he hasn't used in this crisis. I think there are yet more powers Congress could delegate to the president that he hasn't used in this crisis. The critical point, right? The point where everyone across the ideological spectrum agrees is at most this power belongs to Congress and there's no- It's a legislative power. And there's no statute right? There is no statute giving the president any authority to do anything like this. Instead, right, the two things the president could do coercively to really, really try to sort of force the issue, and we've talked about this before, he can order the entire federal workforce back to his offices, right? Yeah, yeah. And, do much. And, well, in some states it does. I mean, in Virginia, that would actually, I think, have a pretty big impact, right? Um, and, right, he can mess with funding. He can withhold um, Stafford Act money. He can withhold CARES Act money. Bobby, maybe not legally. But- I was going to say, you know, my view on this is that yeah. that would
0: be unconstitutional coercion. That would be even worse than the actual overt coercion scenario that was a problem in NFIBB versus. And if be 1B, versus Sevillius, and was flagged as a theoretical problem by Rehnquist in South Dakota B. I I this completely would be a great example of how, how it could be even worse.
1: Bobby, he'd lose the lawsuit, but it yeah. might take two but years. But he might days. win for a while, yeah.
0: That's no, the problem. Can, and of course, the, the one power he's, he's definitely got that is legitimately his, and he should exercise it as much as he feels appropriate, is the bully pulpit. The rhetorical presidency yep. is a real power of the presidency. Yep. He can do that. He can use that. Um, but he can't resist. Now, to your point about there's no statute on point, someone may say, "But the national emergency." In fact, someone did say it, as you noted. The vice president said it. And I must say, this was a disappointing moment. So, I'm going to read the quote. Oh, please. So here's the original I'm quote eat from my people. Good um, food break for Steve. Yeah. Trump said, "Quote: When somebody is president of the United States, the authority is total," which has a nice parallelism with when you're the president that does it it's not a crime right if the uh, president
1: does it it's not a crime
0: right so when somebody's president of the united states the authority is total and that's the way it's got to be he went by on the way segue. how'd
1: that work out for nixon
0: <laughs> he says it's total it's total and the governors know that pence gets up and says quote you can look back through times of war and other national emergencies are you kidding me coach i know uh and, and then it goes on to say, oh, "I've lost it. Where did it go?
1: I had to." If, if, if you take a long, hard look at Cornell Rooker's record, this is the West Wing bit, right? About how you know. So, Penn says, "If you go, if you look at the, if you go back and look through history, you'll see that the president's powers during war and national emergencies has always been plenary." Right. It's yeah. Been, I, I mean, that's, I may have missed a couple words, but is that basically the thrust?
0: It is. I'm, I'm frustrated. Because my screen, my screen froze up when I was trying to. Um, give the exact language because what, what what's clear from the language is, uh, and he also refers to, we're going to get you a, a briefing on that. We can brief that. Um, Any day now, OLC. Shoot, I really wish I could find it. Well, so can I, ah, well, while is, you lo- uh, oh, sorry, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. The, the, we're belaboring the point too much. Um, so he's invoking the idea, Pence is, that because a national emergency declaration has been issued under the National Emergencies Act, that this somehow confers plenary authority to do what Trump is saying. This was not confusing. He was saying he has authority to order the reopening under the National Emergencies Act. Um, And of course, as you say, there is no reading of the National Emergencies Act itself, or more to the point, any of the statutes that the declaration of a national emergency then triggers that would warrant the claim that declaring national emergency has ought to do with what Trump is talking about. There's no statutory authority, full stop. The only interesting questions are found under the headings, well, the headings we're gonna get to in a moment, but they're not statutory headings.
1: Can I say one word about the National Emergency Act? Because we have talked about it a lot on this show, especially in the context of the border wall, right? And so I think a lot of folks are saying, well, wait a second, didn't he just use that to do something he wasn't supposed to do with the border wall? So here's why even the border wall precedent doesn't do anything to help Trump here. Um, The National Emergencies Act is not a substantive statute. And what I mean by that is there is no independent substantive authority that the president gets Bobby under the National Emergencies Act simply by snapping his fingers and declaring a national emergency. Instead, right, the National Emergencies Act is um, unlocking Right, powers that Congress has already delegated to the President right. in other statutes, where the delegation is limited to times of national emergency and sometimes war. Right, war or national okay. emergency. Right.
0: So the question is, there's there's a roster of these cla- these statutes, and the question is, is anything on that roster that it's like a lockbox full of interesting tools, powerful tools in some cases, uh, and the declaration unlocks the lockbox, so Trump can reach in there now for the first time has the ability to use these. In the border wall context, one of the tools in the toolbox is the authority to reprogram certain DOD budget dollars, um, and he did that famously, and, and that was what that controversy was about. About There's nothing of that kind that pertains to trying to override uh, state public health measures or otherwise doing things in furtherance of interstate commerce.
1: So, so to put it another way, I mean, what, I, what, what the vice president should have said is that the president's powers are at his apex, are at their apex right? When the president declares a national emergency. That is clearly true because in those circumstances, the president has all of the powers he has in regular times, plus the additional statutory powers that he only has during a time of a national emergency. But there's a whole lot of real estate between the apex of the president's constitutional powers in a separated powers democracy and total power, which I feel like there's a system of government that has the word total total in it somewhere. Total... uh... Totalism.
0: Totalism. Totalism. (laughs) Um, And yeah, so put it in Jackson steel seizure categories terms. This is not a steel seizures category one scenario. Interestingly, it's not a category three scenario because I don't think there's, there's certainly not a statute that forbids uh, such presidential action, nor is it a situation where Congress, you know, kind of toyed with it and then decided not to do it, a la uh, the Korean War. But Oh, as long as we're talking about the steel seizures case in the Korean War, why don't we talk about claims that Article 2, under emergency conditions, includes within it some sort of plenary power to do what the country needs to be done.
1: Why? I've, I've seen that movie.
0: Well, that was exactly what was argued by the Truman administration in steel seizures. Um, and, and it's really amazing in some ways how similar this is. Uh, in both cases, you have a real deal emergency going on. No one denies there's an emergency with COVID nineteen. Just as no one would deny there was an emergency with the Korean War. Um, in both cases, the thing the president either did do in Truman's case, or kept saying he was going to do, and is still reserving—I'll get to this in a second—he he is still reserving the claim that he has this authority let me actually get to that now when he said in yesterday's press conference that he was going to talk to the governors and the governors will ultimately kind of make a decision. He prefaced it by saying, I have authorized them. I have authorized them to go ahead and open up if, when they're ready.
1: Bobby, I've authorized you to open up when you're ready.
0: <laughs> I'm going to do it right now. Uh, by the way, uh, tonight's episode is brought to you by Austin beer works, uh, Pearl snap, which is a fine pilsner. I highly recommend it. Um, so, uh, in both cases, Truman, with his decision to try, to try to seize and operate the steel mills, Trump, with his assertion that he might order the states to open up, there's a two-step process. There's an assertion of an authority that Congress could give but has not given. And then there's the execution of that authority once it exists. Um, this calls to mind the opinion of one Hugo Black opinion for the court in Steel Seizures, much less famous than its, than its uh, brother, the opinion of Justice Jackson, but nonetheless the opinion of the court, where it's a typical Hugo Black formalistic uh, distinction between the legislative function and the executive function, and Black quite correctly pointing out that what we're talking about here was Truman deciding to grant to himself a power that Congress had given other presidents and could have given to him, but had not given to him, he decided to go ahead and give it to himself, saying, well, but it's an emergency, so I need to do it. And the answer of the Supreme Court was, it's an emergency and need are not sufficient conditions to have the power. You have to have it anyways under Article II, which you don't, or you need to have it given to you by delegation from Congress. Same here, only this time it 's much worse because because there 's a federalism obstacle in addition to the separation of powers obstacle it 's both the horizontal and the vertical dimension um, it 's especially a federalism problem if it literally were to be a directive to the governors and the mayors and the county commissioners or county judges um, if it was a directive to them telling them to change their policies that 's the most manifestly unconstitutional from a federalism perspective thing. That's a very, the very paradigm of forbidden commandeering. If instead, more plausibly, relatively speaking, he weren't to do that, but rather were to simply issue an executive order purporting to order the state of affair, purporting to order the private sector to hereby be liberated from your oppressive state and local government public health directives, Then the question becomes whether that has any force and effect under the supremacy clause. It'd be a classic example of how, well, sure, that would be supreme law of the land if it was constitutional to do. And that brings us back to the question: Where does the president get the power to do this? Unless you believe he has inherent power to do it in general on emergency grounds, or setting that aside, you might make. And now we come to where there's a kernel of an interesting argument to be had, and we want we should flesh it out. Can you get there? By saying that the circumstances of the shutdown orders obviously do substantially and severely even interfere with interstate commerce, that description. Dun, done, done, That's true, and and everyone who's had con law immediately thinks, wait a minute, I remember there's something about things states might do to interfere with interstate commerce. Oh yeah,
1: the dormant commerce clause.
0: The dormant commerce clause. Right. This is the idea that the commerce clause. More specifically and properly, the the interstate commerce or the commerce uh, between or um, is it among the states? I think it's among the states. Clause
1: Article One uh, Section
0: Eight Clause Three is a grant of legislative power to Congress. But in fairness, the Supreme Court has long held that it has a it has a what you negative. yeah, a negative, I like to th- say, radioactive or toxic effect that radiates outward just from being in the Constitution and having all this intent behind it to support interstate commerce. It's been construed to have the effect of silently negating some state actions that interfere, that either actually directly discriminate against other states' commerce, which is the easy case, or in the harder cases, where what the state is doing is um, maybe valuable to the state up to a point, but the damaging effect it has on interstate commerce so outweighs this that we say that it's a violation of the dormant commerce clause. And so the, the best one can say for Trump, and some have said it, and there's, you know, I, I, Rick Hills at NYU has, has advanced this view. and you know, Michael Morley at Florida State. Yeah, so a few people have said this. I, I will grant the and in, in, you know, far be it for me to disagree with smart folks like them. They are, they are really thoughtful on this. I think they're ultimately wrong in how far they go with it. But to the extent that they're saying that look, there's at least an argument here, that there is a role for the executive branch specifically, I assume this is how they would say it, although I don't know it, specifically a, in a basis to go to court in the proper way, to go to court, to try to get a judge to rule that the state's public health measures at some point might be a dormant commerce clause violation. I think in the abstract it's true that, it, that it's a proper role of the executive branch, uh, even if it's a relatively justified public health uh, measure, you can present the issue and a court may, as it has in, in other contexts in the past, may decide that the state's otherwise legitimate state uh, policy or legal action uh, is in fact negated and it's unconstitutional. So you could kind of get somewhere with it. Now, first thing to say about this is Trump wasn't saying he's was going to do any of that. He was saying he was gonna give an order. So in that sense, Trump wasn't just hinting at or-, or right. Once,
1: right, once again, we're grasping at straws to try to come up with the one possible way you might come up with the legal way to do the thing he's talking about doing. Right.
0: No, so, so what I was gonna say was before we noted the obvious separation of powers problem with what he was saying from an invasion of congressional prerogatives perspective in as he's gonna issue an order. Um, but it's also from this perspective, an invasion of the judicial province and the federal judicial power. Um, the case that people have drawn attention to is an old chestnut, a, a true old chestnut. In Ray Debs. Steve, I think we should tell the story of In Ray dabs and go to moderate depth.
1: Moderate depth. Uh, uh, set depth for moderate. Set
0: depth for moderate. Uh, uh, he shows he shows a pattern of two dimensional thinking.
1: All right. So um, can you place that? Of a thing. Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Very good, has to be said. Okay, can I
0: tell, can I set it up? I love the, the facts here, it's very right. interesting. You know,
1: this, this dovetails with my favorite you know, set of statutes.
0: 1893, a little bit of a depression going on.
1: A little bit. Uh, uh,
0: You'll recall the Pullman Company, the, the Pullman Palace Car Company. This is this is the the big, massive uh, railway car manufacturing company. Um in the depression, that depression, they cut wages by a quarter, not not a quarter as in a coin, but a 25% wage cut. Prompts a strike by Eugene V. Debs's American Railroad Union, and they in turn call for sympathy strikes, a boycott uh, from others, uh, other workers in the railway biz, and a lot of railroad employees respond. Um, there are, you know, but different measures at different points in time. More than 20 railroads impacted. Uh, more than 100,000 workers on strike. And then in some places, uh, it got violent or riotous. And in one instance, at least, there was a derailed train that was supposed to be carrying, that was carrying U.S. mail. This gets the White House and Congress both engaged. But this brings us to that other Cleveland. Grover is the president of the United States at the time, um, particularly concerned about the disruption of the Postal Service. And of course, You have to cast your mind back to the times and remember that in in the late 19th century, the the US government's postal service was as if today, it was the US government that's owning and operating and maintaining the internet and probably also UPS and FedEx too. Uh, It was the lifeblood, the lifeblood of so much of commerce. And one of the main things that federal government, uh, one of the main things the federal government did, core function in the strike was perceived not incorrectly as a threat to it. And in, and in some instances, um, a forcible threat to the smooth functioning of it. So DOJ at Cleveland's direction goes to court to get an injunction and the injunction seeks to bar uh, Debs's union from uh, continuing with the strike. And certainly and there's all kinds of elements to it, including these almost preposterous elements, such as uh, forbidding Debs and the other leaders from even communicating with uh, with the employees who were striking and they get the injunction from a district judge who, who talks about the Sherman act and the interstate commerce act as in effect uh, in in net effect, making it illegal to engage in a combination or conspiracy in, in restraint of trade. Now that sounds like the Sherman act standard, but in, in today's uh, perspective, we would never think of that as something you would bring to bear on union activity. That just seems like kind of a, taking something that's meant for corporate combinations and turning it inward towards labor law. But of course this was the 1890s that, that development of, of protection for labor law didn't exist. And the court treated the union's process of organizing itself and for a strike and then administering the strike was treated as a conspiracy to disrupt, uh, commerce. So, um, it, the, the things go on, long story short, Debs continues to communicate, there's all these telegrams documenting his, his urging everyone to stay the course with the strike. And so he gets held in contempt of court, he and other leaders, and they get three to six months sentences for for concededly, basically violating the injunction. And uh, Clarence Darrow represents him, it goes to the Supreme Court, and they're trying to show, among other things, you know, that the it was a misreading of the antitrust laws that the, that the original injunction was invalid. That's kind of how they need to argue it or else he's pretty much obviously in contempt otherwise. Uh, and the court comes in with Justice David Brewer writing with an opinion that is very forcefully in favor of the propriety of what the government had done. So that's where it gets interesting. Does that Constitute a precedent that is in some way analogous to present circumstances? Does it show that the executive branch has at least authority to go to the court, even if not to issue a directive straight off the desk of the president, um, to seek an injunction that, will, that would have the effect of shutting down all the state and local laws or some of the state and local law actions that are shuttering the economy? Um, I think, and I bet you think. This is totally
1: distinguishable. What do you say? <laughs> For at least two reasons.
0: Uh, yeah, I, I have my two
1: reasons. So I, you, you, go, you go first.
0: Okay, my two reasons are um, we have in Inray Dubs action by private actors. One. Not public actors. In this case, True. we're talking about the actions of governments. Now, as, as Rick and I exchanged some Twitter messages earlier, he says, on that point, that makes it more of a dormant commerce clause scenario because normally you don't see the dormant commerce clause brought to bear against private parties. Private persons. Right. Which brings us to the second distinction. These are independent distinctions. And this is what's really doing the work here. The entire premise of In-ray Debs is that there was an illegal activity underway by private actors.
1: In violation right? of federal law.
0: In violated federal law. Whereas here we're talking about something at the clear hard candy core center yeah. of the legitimate authority of state
1: listen I like I, I I like Rick a lot I like clever arguments a lot but the you have to read Debs totally out of context right to get to Rick's point because Rick's point is can I can I try to rephrase what you said just in a way yeah, that's somewhat please. a little bit more pithy um <laughs> that shouldn't be hard no, no. Rick's point, in essence, is that DEB stands for the proposition that the executive branch has the power to walk into court and enjoin violations of the Dormant Commerce Clause, right? I mean, that's – and so therefore, you know, Trump could sue um, – let's, let's say Quo- Governor Cuomo tomorrow, right, announces that, you know, he will not lift his order, right? And so Trump says, I am suing you to enjoin your order insofar as it violates the Dormant Commerce Clause. And Rick says, Debs would stand for precedent for that. The problem is, is that Debs makes no sense, right? Without all of the baggage of the federal laws that were being violated, right? That is to say, Debs is not a Dormant Commerce Clause case. And we know Debs is not a Dormant Commerce Clause case because Debs is not a state. And the Dormant Commerce Clause has never been suggested that it applies to non-state actors. Um, Instead, and this is where it gets into my bailiwick, Bobby, DEBS is about local combinations, right? Frustrating the enforcement of federal statutes. This DEBS is about the Insurrection Act. DEBS is about, you know, when can the government use coercive authority to put down local um, violations of federal law? And indeed, Cleveland- And and Brewer says like, hey, his his
0: whole argument is what you're saying, and therefore the lesser included option of, just seeking
1: an injunction. A bill equity. That's right. It's, and exactly so. And so, and Cleveland indeed did, I think at one point, send in the army. He
0: sent in the U.S. Army. Um, governors brought in
1: national militias, um, but also Cleveland sent in the army to Chicago. But this is the point, Bobby, right? He didn't send in the army to vindicate the Dormant Commerce Clause, right? The, the army did not go to Chicago to enforce the Dormant Commerce Clause. The army went to Chicago to enforce the underlying federal statutes that the Pullman strike was obstructing the enforcement of. And so, you know, Debs, I think, stands most understandably for the proposition that the executive branch needs no special warrant, needs no statute, needs no special authority to repair to court, right, Um, short of sending in the military as a mechanism for enforcing federal statutes against recalcitrant local local obstruction.
0: So without take an issue with any of that. Although I would like to see what Cleveland actually said. I assume there's a declaration and we should try to find it.
1: There is, it's, it's in the, um, I, can, I can probably find it. It's in the Army Center for Military History's, you know, comprehensive volume on uses of military force for domestic disturbances.
0: I'd be curious to see whether he actually framed it in statutory terms, because I can well imagine, because that's a, also a, just a public and, and rhetorical document that it had broad references just to interstate commerce. But either way, it doesn't really matter. I think it's perfectly fine and safe to concede the point that the executive branch can and indeed often has gone to court to challenge official state actions on the ground that they interfere too much with uh, the Dormant Commerce Clause. In fact, I think that's the very paradigm of a Pike case under the Dormant Commerce Clause. Um, nothing wrong with that. The, the problem is the uh, that's not remotely what Trump or Pence were saying. Pence was claiming plenary generic authority to do what needs to be done during emergencies. Uh, and the president was claiming authority to direct the activities of governors, etc. And anyways, even if Trump came out tomorrow and said, Oh, I'm sorry, I wasn't clear, sometimes I get carried away. What I meant was, I will direct the Justice Department to uh, litigate a dormant commerce clause claim. Um, so first of all, that means the courts are the boss of this. Right. Secondly, they would so clearly lose under the current factual circumstances. There's a reason for two reasons
1: in that claim. For two reasons, right? First, um, the the principal critic of the dormant commerce clause on the Supreme Court is Justice Thomas, right? I mean, the the dormant commerce clause is not exactly popular. Yeah. He says on the it's a judicial invention.
0: It's in Article One. It's in Article One, Section Eight, not the subsequent section that talks about restraints on states. Um, but even if even if everyone on the court was perfectly fine with applying the pike analysis and running a, a relatively ordinary dormant commerce clause analysis, this fact pattern seems to be, at, I suppose one could say you never know what the courts might want to do, but w- the typical case in which the court is willing to strike down a state Action under dormant commerce clause grounds is not the state using its public health powers in the thick of a pandemic, where where the public health authorities largely are saying that right now this is a necessary condition to save lives. I think I'm perfectly comfortable saying it is inconceivable that as long inconceivable, inconceivable as long as it's like this, there's not the slightest chance the court is going to say like, yeah, we're kind of going with the executive branch on this one. It's just too it's just too much. it's certainly true that over time, that that hopefully will change. And you can even imagine a situation in which there's a public health, I'm sorry, a medical breakthrough, and there actually is suddenly a dramatically reduced need, and yet somewhere some county commission or, or mayor is holding in place, or a state governor is holding in place with the draconian economic shutdown when they truly don't need to be, or at least it's very arguable they don't need to be. Yeah, you can imagine the Dormant Commerce Clause ruling in that case, at least it, I can. It
1: would still uh, But that's
0: not this case. Well, yeah, it's not what, it's not what Trump's it, talking about.
1: I mean, the other problem is, I mean, just even for judges who like the Dormant Commerce Clause, it's not – a, a, a shelter-in-place order doesn't discriminate against interstate commerce. It discriminates against all commerce, right? It doesn't. It doesn't preference or prefer local commerce over interstate commerce. Right?
0: I think that's not fatal to the dormer Commerce clause because as no, no, long as no. you're not under the discrimination problem, I know, I know.
1: You still need, you still need, you still need the balancing. But Bobby, there are Supreme Court cases that suggest that public health tilts in favor of the state.
0: Oh yeah, no, and in, in fact, um, you know, I like to go back to Gibbons v. Ogden itself, where in the, right. you know, in the
1: that that's an old chestnut.
0: That is an old chestnut. I love that case. Um, I uh, recall that that is where you get the dicta for Johnson. Justice Johnson wants to, wants to talk about this idea. And wants to rule on it. And it forces Marshall to say in passing, almost as if he's telling his colleague, yeah, yeah, okay, fine. Yeah, there could be something like that. We'll see. And then later, Wilson versus Blackbird C- Creek kind of reifies it a little bit more. But in Gibbons v. Ogden, there's such strong language from, from, uh, from Marshall saying, like, of course, New York is still allowed to employ its quarantine laws or other public health laws because that's core state interest that the, the interstate commerce concern doesn't override that. That, that goes all the way back. All right, I think uh, we've kicked this one enough. What do you? It's think? too bad.
1: I was, I was almost up to. I'm looking at the Army Military History document right now, and I'm up to the Pullman strike. And I'm just trying to find. Okay, dig, actual... dig to there. I will, I will,
0: uh, I will tap dance a bit while we're going. That's no, all right.
1: It's fine. Uh, you know. Well, let me say
0: something because I actually have something I want to talk about. The oh. pause while you're looking there.
1: Sure.
0: Um, there's some really cool and interesting uh, track uh, contact tracing stuff going on in Pandemia right now, and so let's talk about that real briefly. Uh, Apple and Google made a splash by announcing that they were going to collaborate on adjusting both iOS and, and Android in ways that would uh, uh, make it much easier to develop a Singapore style um, local storage of the data only contact tracing app, where if your phone's in Bluetooth range of the other person's phone for enough of a period of time, it, they'll exchange basically um, an anonymized but but connectable, uh, moment of contact. And if later on, you know, so your phone's logging all these contacts you've had that, that trip that standard, then you go to the doctor, you've got COVID-19, the doctor certifies it and through some kind of process to be determined, then there's a way through this, this app that everyone who did have that contact with you, who's got that connection recorded can get a notification with some sort of information, which could be calibrated as just notice, maybe you should go get yourself tested. Um, Sounds like Beverly Hills Cop. Get the reference, um, or it's <laughs> <laughs> deep cut there, um, or maybe even if it's tied in with something more draconian, it's a directive under local public health laws that you're now to self quarantine. Um, this has set off a lot of interesting commentary. Um, I posted something on Lawfare about this the other day to put it in context with the larger story of what are the options for contact tracing, uh, beginning with the traditional existing option of voluntary interviewing conducted by uh, the nation's Impressive, but nonetheless finite in number. Public health field investigators who do these things, and kind of running the gamut from there to other other possibilities, and noting that if we do go with something more heavy-handed and intrusive, especially if we have legislation that requires something like the contact tracing app, and above all, if it requires not just the contact tracing but location tracking, um, which it might, if if we if we really think that that's the way out of it, you never know. Um, There needs to be a sunset. There needs to be uh, real time public reporting auditing by some inspector general or other such uh, auditing type function. Um, there needs to be automatic requirements that the code, it's wired into the code that the data deletes at a certain point, um, some specific number of days and, and so forth. Um, a lot of safeguards that would need to be legislated if we're gonna do this in a way that's mandatory. And why would it be mandatory? Because if you don't get a lot of people doing this and people debate about what the percentage of the population needs to be to make this effective, then it's not going to help enough. And theres I've heard people say 45%. I've heard people say 60%. I've heard people say 80%. Um, I don't know that there is any scenario in which 80% of our population carries their phones with them, phones enabled with this app that are on, powered, and, and are with people when they go out and about. So. Maybe we're never going to get there. But in any event, if we do try to go there, lots of safeguards needed. Steve, did you find Grover Cleveland's proclamation?
1: Um, I think I did. Stand by. Um, shoot. Okay, I don't. Have, so I don't have the literal text of the proclamation, but I have a reference to it that I'm going to put on the screen right now. Cool. Um, so this is from the Army Center for Military History's um, history of the use of um, – federal troops and domestic disorders. Um, And Bobby, if you look at the left-hand page, this is page 144 of the 1877 to 1945 volume. You see this paragraph in the middle to Altgeld's arguments. Uh So that Altgeld was the governor of Illinois. And so Cleveland tersely replied that he had ordered federal troops to Chicago in strict accordance with the constitution and federal statutes and had issued somewhat belatedly a cease and desist proclamation to the rioters. Um, Right. So in other words, that there was a federalism fight because Cleveland was doing what the governor did not want him to do. And Cleveland was saying, I'm using these statutes and my constitutional authority to put down this strike.
0: Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. And that was the governor of Illinois who did not want uh, the military in
1: there. Correct. So I said, listen, I... We've spent an awful lot of time trying to make lemonade out of these lemons, right? I mean, I think the short version <laughs> is you and I think even a creative reading of Inray Debs doesn't get the president anywhere close to what he's doing. But I think it's important to stress that like, this is why we care about these nuances because you, know, you and I, neither of us are especially um, timid defenders of the idea that the executive branch has incredibly broad powers to respond to particular emergencies. But one of the things that keeps those powers in check is nuance, right? Is understanding that like those powers are finite, those powers have limits, and those powers are not just available whenever the president snaps his fingers. And so, you know, this is a textbook example of Trump doing exactly what I find most distressing about his presidency, which is saying, you know, I can do it, Never mind the legal arguments, and his base saying, "Of course you can," because Obama. <laughs> moi. Yep.
0: All right. Um, Thank you, let's... Louis.
1: Louis Couture's. <laughs> we're going. We're going all over the cultural map he, tonight.
0: He also had a, a taste for shiny gold and flashy things.
1: Um, um, I, I, I would never put President Trump in the same sentence as Louis XIV. <laughs>
0: It's, uh, it's an interesting comparison. By the way, I'm currently reading, can we digress? I'm currently reading Neil Stevenson's uh, Quicksilver, which is book one of his Baroque uh, trilogy. And I got to say, this book is so much fun. And I mentioned it because uh, Louis Couture and the Ghost of Charles I, at least, a lot more Charles II, um, all your Baroque characters, they're in there. And it's, it is a great read. We've a, a, uh, we have, we have a
1: podcast. Times, we have a podcast episode where we've talked about Charles the First, Louis the Fourteenth, and Alexander Hamilton. That's gotta be a first.
0: I'm loving it. All right. Um, Wait, I'm, but, so I'm,
1: I, I'm reading right now. I am reading for the second time in my life, The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich by mm-hmm. William F. Scheyer. It's um, a
0: it's a must-read book. Um well, and, and, I'm not sure I would do it twice.
1: Well, so I read it like a junior year of high school for AP European history, but the you know the point that I made to Karen because apparently I um I, I saw uh, my friend Rafi Malconian on Twitter talking about how he's reading, um, gosh, this book I just finished about um, uh, Nazi Germany's first 100 days. Um, Interesting. And, and there's and so Karen was like, why are you people reading about the Nazis? And what I was saying to her is, you know, well, wait a second, but it's not it's it's not just like bec- this is this, it's not the simple you know because Trump is a Nazi. That's not my position, <laughs> right? Um. It's it's actually I think because it's a powerful reminder that as bad as sometimes it feels like things are, it could be a lot worse.
0: Oh yeah, I agree. I'm glad you actually went that way because I think as much as you and I both, as rule of law people, find so much endlessly, incredibly frustrating about uh, the recent years, um, and really deeply problematic and serious. Um, I think we are often too quick to to equate the challenges of our own times to to what went on in actual totalitarian societies in places that went down the toilet the way that, that unfortunately for the German people and for all these other people that that went. And so to me, the one of the many virtues of, of reading books like the like these you're talking about, and I'll throw in here Garden of the Beast, uh, Eric Larson's book, which is a lighter, more, more, more uh, accessible, but still instructive read. Um, is that you need to study the examples of what did ordinary people do and, and how did they react in the face of the early provocations and problems. All
1: right, so I wanted to do, I wanted to do a really quick hit on Guantanamo and then we want to do Westworld, right? That was our, our goal. Um, yep. So on Guantanamo, um, there was a ruling by the trial judge in the 9-11 case. Um, I guess it was either last week or early this week. And in essence, Bobby, the ruling is that um, the defendant in the 9/11 case will not have access to the unclassified, to the sorry, to the classified full version of the Senate Intelligence Committee's study into the CIA retent, ret, uh, rendition, detention, interrogation program. Um, basically, that they have not sort of shown that they are entitled to um, that evidence as part of their defense in the 9/11 case. Um, I have not yet seen a written opinion explaining and rationalizing this decision, and so I don't want to weigh in on the merits yet, Bobby. Because I think we should wait to see what what the actual rationale is. Okay. I just want to say that I think this really dovetails with a point you and I have both made, although perhaps I stronger than you, um, that you know, the best case scenario for the government is that these is that these capital convictions are gonna to have to survive a post-conviction appeal to the DC circuit. And you know I do think it is reasonable to wonder whether these kinds of rulings are actually gonna make it harder right, for these decisions, for these rulings to survive that appeal if you're denying defendants access to potentially material, not exculpatory evidence, Bobby, nothing in the RDI report could possibly be exculpatory, but mitigation evidence in a capital case Right. That's where I could see, you know, civilian Article 3 judges being a little squeamish.
0: Do you think that if this case was going down in the Southern District um, and the same, you know, discovery request is made, it's predictable how it would come out? Is it, is it obvious that the request would have been granted?
1: I, I, you know, I don't know that's obviously. I, I think there might have been a real fight over providing the defendants or at least their counsel with redacted summaries of that that gets closer to what's in the the classified report as opposed to the 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 executive summary thereof. Um, you know, I, I don't know that for a fact, but I do think that it's at least a question, and there are going to be a lot of these questions sort of baked into the nine eleven trial as we get closer and closer to some inevitable if you know forever in the future trial date
0: by the way i dug. i found it Uh, i found the president's proclamation it's at the miller Miller center's website's got it
1: that's what i that's where i went went wrong
0: july 8th 1894 proclamation regarding the railroad strike um it's not written up as a legal document it's it's the proclamation messaging to the strikers that they need to disperse
1: but i'll just but bobby not because they were not because they were interfering Right, not not because they were violating the dormant commerce clause, but because they no, were interfering no, with the mail.
0: Yeah, here I'll I'll read. There's, it's none of that. Um, yeah. It's not about that at all. Now, granted, that's not the. This isn't the basis for going into court. Right, but this was the basis for actually using the force that Justice Brewer talks about being the the greater power within which the injunctive uh, request was a lesser power. Uh, whereas, by reason, I've always wanted to you know be Grover Cleveland. So here I go. Whereas, by reason of unlawful obstructions, combinations, and assemblages of persons, it's become impracticable in the judgment of the president to enforce by the ordinary course of judicial proceedings the laws of the United States within the state of Illinois, especially in the city of Chicago within said state. And whereas, for the purpose of enforcing the faithful execution of the laws of the United States and protecting its property and removing obstructions to the United States males in the state and city aforesaid, the president has employed a part of the military forces of the United States. Um, so yeah, it, it, this at least wasn't framed as, as an interstate commerce no, thing. No, no, it's,
1: it's you guys are violating federal statutes and I need to enforce those federal statutes and therefore I'm ordered to disperse, I'm sending in the military and I'm suing you.
0: So shall we pivot uh, to Westworld, my friend?
1: Yes, where things are totally under control.
0: <laughs> exactly. All right. Uh, if you're going to sign off because you don't care about Westworld, you're missing out, but we, we love you anyways, and we're glad you stayed with us this far. Uh, if you're sticking around for the Westworld recap, awesome. Join in. We've got to talk about genre. I was so curious when I saw the show title, and I was like, huh, I wonder what that's going to be. And it turns out one of, the, one of the elements I did actually enjoy about the show, and yet they failed to really cash in on it remotely as well as I thought they were setting it up to be was the, uh, the sort of high-tech drug that provides the at least the aesthetic framing for how they tell Cal and Dolores' story. Um, did you enjoy any of that? Because I actually really liked the idea uh, when Marshawn Lynch, uh, right. <laughs> genre, uh, he man. All, when he goes all basal exposition and, uh, and just has to explain for the audience, like randomly feels the need to be like, oh, I know what drug you're on. You're, t- you're on genre. Like, first of all, there's no way you have any idea what drug is on because of the way that Cal looks like he's not feeling well or whatever. But it was very interesting this idea that there's this uh, combination of the, the technical and the pharmacological that causes him to cycle through a period, uh, like a five act play, in which his senses are distorted. So the first opening act. He's perceiving that he's in like a movie, I guess, kind of a, a black and white film with a bit of a classic vibe to it.
1: And like then film, after a while, like a film, like film noir.
0: Film noir, yeah. So he's living in a film noir. It's Maltese Falcon. He's seeing everything that's really happening, but he's hearing music, and it's and it's gone black and white. And so the aesthetic framing of his perceptions become like that. And then after a while, it transitions and switches to a different genre. Um, and goes, it goes, uh, it goes uh, all Valkyrie. Uh, right. the ride of the Valkyries right. and we get some Wagner some Wagner yeah Wagner's all right and uh the and I kept thinking and they even have Marshawn Lynch say like oh but beware act five and I was like oh right. man it's going to become like a it'll become horror film or the genre like there will be a clear genre for each but as it went it got less and less relevant to how they shot the scenes that were from Kyle's perception. And but, all but, you really but, thought, was I, music.
1: But I thought, so, so, so part of the problem was, yes, it seemed like an excuse to give us some really good music. Um, it was very good music. It was very good music. Part of it also was, I think what they were setting it up for was the totally messed up reality that Dolores has now created by sending everybody their insight files, right? The, there's, the, the, there's like 15 minutes of exposition to get to Cal asking Marshawn Lynch, you know, what genre is this? And he says, reality right that like yeah. you know the whole point is to set up that line that like you know you're not tripping anymore the world right. is tripping and right. it's like and it's like Westworld yeah that's a
0: weak payoff
1: right like i mean i this was the first i thought real badly placed step in what i've found to be a really enjoyable season thus far i just thought this was a waste of time
0: so let's talk about the big reveal of what the, at least at least part of clearly not done but big part of her plan seems already accomplished and by the way accomplished like that
1: i know Um, that was that was easy
0: you know with 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 a little bit of like oh deus ex machina we got this way oh i'm in two places once and boom press here and we're good to go because we because we caught liam and we can just mail everyone all their Rehoboam files and uh and then all hell breaks loose it's the purge because people can't handle the truth
1: and it just felt
0: you know it wouldn't be like that fast.
1: It, it, it wouldn't be that fast in reality. Like the problem is like, right, it's, it's like they flipped the a switch. And it's like, yes, people would have profound reactions to seeing that kind of information about them. Yeah. But I don't think like you'd see society collapsing within Right, there's suddenly minutes. there's
0: no civil order. Right, right? in like, four minutes. Yeah, I, I agree. It's like, it just felt like they're speeding through kind of a cliched. It's after,
1: a- after that whole weird slow genre trip.
0: Yes. And they, and they, and they didn't stay with that, which would have been cool. Right. So I, so I didn't appreciate how um, it felt like Westworld's, I mean, sorry, Game of Thrones final season. Like we just got to get through this because yes. we have X number of shows, we have X number of plot points. This is a big one, but we got to get done with it. So boom, there it goes. And but I
1: loved all the Ciroc stuff.
0: Yeah. So his backstory. So first I want to say this about it. Um, you know, I, I I'm, I'm going to set aside how I'm constantly irked by how they, you know, keeping like religion stupid and we finally get ourselves free, but we rebuilt a new God. And by the way, did we tell you religion stupid? I'll set that aside. I get By it. the way,
1: I have to get my power cord. So you're going to come on a little walk with me for a second. Oh, oh this is kind of fun. Hey, everybody, we're going around Steve's house. We're going into a very dark part of my house because I have to go upstairs. So oh,
0: those who are only listening are missing the spectacle. All right, Wait talking. Can I keep talking normal? Yes.
1: Yeah. yeah. Okay. I've, I've had phones on.
0: Oh, this is awesome. So Steve can't talk. The screen's gotten dark because he's gone into sleeping young child land to find the power cord for his laptop through which the recording's being made. And I'm kind of disappointed because I'm not actually getting to see all, all of what's going on there. It's just, it's just dark. Um, oh, there's, there's light. In any event, I'll just keep sharing my, my views on Westworld. Uh, oh, lights are back on. He's entered another room. What are we observing?
1: You're observing the room where I um, have been teaching my classes from the room where it happens.
0: I see, I see the old microphone. I see everything. Um, So his, his vision, Sarak's vision is the classic kind of cliched. I will force them to be free Humanity's you know, its own worst enemy is he keeps repeating in case we forget that's what his premise is. And they'll just, you know, kind of put us onto the matrix, but we'll stay in our own bodies but it'll all be scripted and in case people aren't sure about the similarity and the parallelism you act to, you make sure to have a few characters say hey they're in loops or now they're off their loops
1: right. line, it, right
0: yeah and dolores's job is to free us from our loops because the uh, the you know the synths needed to be free or the hosts needed to be free it's so now, outside so of the humans now the humans need to be free too um although it's weird because i thought she I, I guess you could say this Maybe Dolores understands, like, yeah, this is actually going to be pretty terrible because I thought Dolores really wanted to punish humanity for all the horrible uh, aspects of our nature that were demonstrated so thoroughly against her and others inside the park. Um, or are we supposed to believe now that she's a libertarian freedom fighter, she's Morpheus, and, she's, and she just passed out the pill to everybody whether they wanted it or not? Um, which do you think it is?
1: I think she wants to destroy humanity so that the, you know, the host can take over.
0: All right. So then she's, then she's totally cool with all
1: the, the ways it's falling apart. Um, and and the, the, you know, Ciroc's watch with the chaos growing, right? Oh, That the, was well done. I thought yeah. that, that little bit of- uh, I thought, all, I thought really... all the Ciroc stuff was great. Like I thought the backstory stuff was great. I thought the narrative stuff was great. I just, the weird little sort of, you know, tour through, you know, LA just seemed totally weird to me.
0: Yeah. And of course, it also kept making me think, I know I'm supposed to just accept because the plot won't work if they have it. But the idea that this society doesn't have ubiquitous facial recognition, right. Right. which would and and also some serious, uh, rapidly deployable QRF police, you know, SWAT type power to bring to bear. Um, there's Wait, all I've sorts of... The- after, I mean, Dolores at, has no ability to fight from a distance. So a helicopter that fires fires a missile at her would end this, you know, at least
1: with that body of hers. Right. I mean, the military seems to be missing. Like they said, it's all private. Like after after the privacy laws, there also seems to be no more government.
0: <laughs> right. Yeah, well, I guess you're. I'm sure that the show would say, or the show writers would say, no, no. Like that's the whole beauty of the the Roboam system is right. like they're on enough, their loops. That's not, if that's the case, though, there sure is a shit ton of crime. In their world, right? As Cal demonstrated, there's like some really serious and very overt crime going on. So it doesn't seem like they've made that much of a paradise uh, in a world where, as they put it, uh, there are personals, you know, going to commit crime for against uh, violent crime against individuals. I mean, are we just supposed to think like, yeah, Rehoboam considers that part of like some acceptable, uh, you know, safety valve level of violence in their society?
1: Yeah, I mean, that's, that's where we are. <laughs> yeah. But I, so I still liked it, right? It's just, yeah. I, didn't, I, just I just didn't like, I thought, it was, I, thought the, I thought genre was a detour and a, and a frolic.
0: So um, we're told that Bernard is central. And in mm-hmm. fact, Bernard's the only one that has to be saved. So he's, he, she brought him back for a reason. We've wondered what it was since he doesn't seem to be cooperating with her. Maybe he is and doesn't realize it because right. there's some that's larger plan. So he's, a, he's being led down some path thinks he's free but he's not what do you think it is that bernard is supposed to do that's gonna be so uh so capable of bringing an apotheosis to
1: this situation maybe bernard's the one who kills mave and
0: gets her out of the way yeah. yeah but she didn't know when she took him out that mave was
1: gonna be out that's true she has that's, that's right she dolores and, and indeed i'm not sure we i we only, I think, does know now. She was out?
0: Yeah.
1: Um, do we know that? Does Dolores know that Mave is out? I'm not sure she does. Not sure. Yeah. Well, we'll find out. I'm excited. I'm sad that there are only three more episodes left.
0: All right. What is, uh, we're going to be done soon. What else are we going to be watching and reviewing?
1: Billions is coming back soon. Are you a Billions person?
0: I've never watched it. I've
1: mm-hmm. not. Um, and I assume you, you never watched you, you have not gotten into Tiger King? <laughs> I
0: can't bring myself to do it.
1: Hmm. yeah all right well suggestions are welcome uh baseball <laughs> we'll review we'll, we'll go <laughs> back through old I baseball wish. we'll go back through old baseball seasons and talk about who the mvp should have been
0: <laughs> exactly
1: um, right.
0: this been he is
1: at bobby chesney i am at steve underscore Vladik. we are at nsl podcast you know bobby tuesday was the president has total power today he's you know adjourning congress what what will tomorrow bring
0: powerful reopening
1: oh jesus fucking christ <laughs> yep. stay safe out there everybody
0: adios